Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Nathaniel Popkin. He is a nationally recognized writer and editor of fiction and nonfiction, film, criticism, and journalism. He is the author of three books of nonfiction and two novels, including Everything is Borrowed and Lion and Leopard, which reimagines the life and tragic death of the first American genre painter, John Lewis Kimmel. In his new novel, The Year of Return, award-winning chronicler of Philadelphia history, Nathaniel Popkin, offers a sweeping look at the city in the bicentennial year of 1976. As crime, white flight, class resentment, and profound social unrest smolder, two families, the Jewish Silks and the African-American Johnsons, are first united by marriage and then by grief as they go about the difficult task of trying to live in an America failing to live up to its ideal. It's a novel about dystopia and utopia converging in everyday life. It's a great book, and we had a great conversation about it. I give you Nathaniel Popkin. Nathaniel, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Scott. Great to be here. You are the only guest who I've done live every time, like repeat guest, and you've been live every time. So it's very fun that we can do that. Yeah, how about it? Uh, Well, let's see how it goes. (laughs) So this book, your newest novel, The Year of the Return, I read somewhere in an interview you gave that you wrote this in six weeks. Not entirely true. Well, yes, I I drafted it uh, over two different uh, writing residencies in 2017. So uh, the the first third, uh, yeah, six weeks, it's right. It's it's about right. And then, of course, it went through substantial reworking and revision uh, with my writer's group and then with the editor at Open Books. Um, but uh, I don't think I've ever brought a project like this start to finish so quickly. Yeah, it was that due to schedule constraint or was that like the, did inspiration strike you had to go while the iron was hot or how did that work for you the, the reason the book uh took only six weeks to write there are two reasons one is i wrote it at two residencies where i was focused on that that's all i had to work on uh, uh in my normal life i have 10 different projects going at one time and i have to squeeze in the writing into the cracks and in this th- this is the this is the reason for residency. This is the brilliant idea of being able to go somewhere and focus and forget about everything else. Uh, the second reason is that the book emerged into my notebook uh, fully formed. The characters must have been lying dormant inside of my body for years because I wrote them out, I, I worked them out, I gave them names and birthdays and lives but they already were living. And so when it came time to write, and the, and I should add that the book is told in the first person by all the characters, their voices were already there. And so it, it was never a struggle. Yeah, it is in first person of, of, you know, basically you're telling the story of two families, one that's Jewish, one that's African-American. And there's several characters. It, 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 
the, I mean, the point of view, it's really interesting, a, a point of view novel, right? Where, where there's no narrator. Was that, was that, uh, how, how does the form relate to the content? I mean, I have things I, like, I thought like, I'm thinking, gosh, this city, this novel set in 1976, the city looks and feels so different depending on if you're black, if you're an immigrant, if you're one of the people from Frank Rizzo is bringing back law and order. Is it part of trying to show the city looks and feels so different from all these perspectives? Exactly. I think if you have a cacophony, which is what a city is, and you want to represent that, you have to let the voices um, emerge on their own, on their own terms. And you can't, you know, if you try to narrate through it, you're you're automatically going to mute some of those voices. So the point of the first person is to almost make a direct line from the character to the reader's heart. And and in that sense, the, the characters get to live. It's a form I've played with before in my first novel, Lion and Leopard. Half of it was written in that form, and the other half had a, a kind of narrator. Uh, it's a form that I love to read um, because um, I, I feel like I'm part of the story when I'm reading it. Now, this book is set in 1976, I- uh, the, the anniversary of the country, and it it's called the year of return. I, and one of the characters, Silk, has returned from his exodus, you know, to Denver. From he went to Denver to Denver with his now deceased wife. He's returned, and he's returned to this city that's anticipating the bicentennial, and is full of tension, racial tension, uh, tension of a, a city that it, its economy is changing, and there's all sorts of changes. I mean, why this setting? Why 1976? Was it originally? Did you were you playing around with the setting, or did you just know these people were? in the mid seventies at the bicentennial? Uh, it came from several places at once. One, uh, I grew up in the seventies and, uh, I wanted to get at some of the themes of my own childhood and my own life. Uh, the second thing is that this was a, a fraught moment in American life in, in so many different ways. Um, all cities, all of the legacy cities, particularly of the East coast and of the Midwest were in economic freefall. Uh, losing tens and hundreds of thousands of people to Sunbelt and the West and also just the suburbs. Um, deindustrialization was in full force. It was actually the sort of end of it. The fact that we're, that, that uh, Donald Trump became president on, um, the, uh, on, on the scars of deindustrialization is kind of hilarious because deindustrialization started in, in Philadelphia where the book is set really in the 1920s. Um, so uh, this is a long story, and it was the 70s in which it finally met its final um, wave, uh, here at least. And uh, so there's that. There's the fact that we're coming off of Vietnam, we're coming off of Watergate and Richard Nixon. The country is at a turning point. The um, protest movements have matured. Those from the 60s, the anti-war movement, civil rights, gay rights, the environment, anti-nukes, these things are all in the air. They're thick in the air. Uh, and so I saw the moment as a really a moment of conflict, a moment of despair, and a moment in, in which the country didn't know what direction it was going in. And so very quite clearly felt like the moment we're living in right now. Yeah, it's it's interesting because generationally, you know, when you look at the 
characters. You have Sam Silk, who's the owner of Silk Industries. This, and he's the father of of Alan and Paul. Paul is the again this kind of character whose return the story tell you know the story narrates. He has this factory that this textile, you know, the silk industry, which his family has been, I mean, he's sort of, part of the book is interesting. He doesn't want to die on his watch, right? I mean, they've kind of made it and 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 that's a struggle. And then you have Charles Johnson, who is a tasty bake delivery truck driver, the, the father of several kids. His daughter married Paul. And he's kind of, you tell in the beginning how he was happy that he helped get black guys into the, the tasty cake. It's a good job. It's back when you could have a a blue collar job like that and have a family. And it was, it was, so you have these sort of two figures who are so different. And yet, you know, one scene they're eating together with the families and you can see these, these are just two guys who had made it in different ways, not without uh, struggles and and their tensions and anxieties, but they're the, the, the place they had made for themselves is now, uh, you know, their kids are, are, uh, yeah, it is a much more tumultuous time that their kids have, and their kids seem to feel uh, I don't know if less at home, but but the, the the place is not the place that their parents made a name for themselves in. It, you know, the American dream is changing, right? And and it's you can feel the sort of change between their parents who have made this home, right? Have made these homes, and and and, and the sort of less relative uh, less you know stability of the kids and and the tumultuous nature of their lives. It, it's a it's a time of rupture, and we, and this is you know there are cliches about this that we go from the industrial work the industrial economy which allowed you know working class people to have a row house and build a family and send their kids to public schools and the schools were decent and and the son of the family could go into the factory job following the father and the pay was decent and the work was decent and there was pride and all of these things and. And that world is being is finally being shattered. It's being broken. It's it is rupturing, and uh, for the final time, the final rupturing. And so you're exactly right. So the kids are inheriting a world that they're a little less sure of. In fact, they're they're looking at it at us with a side glance because they're not sure how they fit into it. So Paul Silk is. You know, he 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 wonders why his father never imagined uh, Paul or his brother Alan taking over the sweater factory. Where the sweater factory isn't going to be around much longer. Uh, Sam Silk is holding on for dear life, and he's allowing himself to be extorted by some of his employees just to survive. It's funny too because his wife's mother remarks like that. You know, she she lamented that all these guys that were courting her at Cornell, there's like a famous anthropologist and she takes this Russian Jew who's like a, you know, who's a shopkeeper, you know, merchant. You know, I think of like, you know, for Plato and Aristotle, you know, making money doing that. So even if you're rich, that's still like, that's not, you know, noble work, you know, that, so there's this sort of, you know, he's got this chip on his shoulder, right? He's, he's, he's a hard worker and, 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 and there's something about that that's, you know, his, his, his wife's family wanted a little more of a sort of an elite class for her. Well, well, that's right. And, and that whole division is portrayed in the book as a division between German Jews and Russian Jews, which is a very real thing in the world. And where the, the German Jews had come to the United States in the middle of the 19th century in the 1860s beginning and, and came as rather wealthy people, but established themselves doing things like making jewelry or watches or, um, or doing watch repair or optometry and inventing 
you know, lenses and things like that. And, and so there was a, and then they build up from there into banking and, and, um, real estate and all the, all these different kinds of, um, uh, industries in the United States. And then the Russian Jews came as peasants and much poorer, and the Germans weren't sure whether they wanted them to come in the first place. And so there's a real cultural division in the United States. It's sort of been hidden or um, covered over over the generations, but that was very real in the 20th century in the United States, so much so that the German Jews weren't, when the Russians came over from the pogroms, they weren't sure whether to accept them or how to give them aid or if they wanted to. And then there's a a lot of doubling in this book. And and so on the African-American side, there's a very similar kind of thing that happens where uh, the Great Migration brings uh, families from the South, beginning uh, really in the, at the turn of the 20th century, all the way until 1970. And those people also are peasants, and they're poor. Uh, and they come into a place like Philadelphia, which has uh, hundreds of years of free black people living here, and uh, who have got who have become lawyers and doctors, and there's sort of there's a lot of poverty and despair, but there's also a kind of settled in sense, an elite sense, and there's the same kind of clash of cultures in that world as well. There's a line that Annette Johnson, Charlene, who's Paul's deceased uh, wife, it's her sister. And she's walking through Rittenhouse Square, and, and the, the the counterculture scene is is more intense there than it is now. <laughs> I mean, you still find some of that, but it's a different Rittenhouse Square. And she's looking around. And she says that you know that since my sister died, a voice came inside my head and said that I was supposed to continue living her life, except that we are so different, it didn't make any sense. But when I'm walking around Center City, I'm always looking for mixed couples. And she says, you know, I guess that. There's not many black girls like my sister who find a white guy to love, but Paul is Jewish. And that line just jumped out at me. Uh, it, you know, I, I kept reading it, Paul is Jewish. And so it seemed to me that that's different than white. Uh, and even still, there are arguments in current, in current cultural discourse. You know, if you're Jewish, how privileged are you? And, you know, and so there's something, it seems that, that you have these families who have this rooted history in America and yet are outsiders, right? And, and, and this is, is this partially why you pair the, the Jewish and the African-American couple that, that, that they're, 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 this is their country and yet it's not? Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the, the Jewish and the black experience in America have always been extraordinarily aligned in, in magnetizing ways and in repulsive ways. You know, there's, there's a great deal of love and a great deal of hatred and a great deal of resentment um, and a great deal of acceptance. So, you know, very often uh, Jews were far more progressive um, on racial issues than other white people were because they they themselves were not considered white. And the process of becoming white, which is all but finished now for for Jewish people in America who are basically seen as, as just white, I mean, there's there's kind of, kind of a backlash going on right now in the Trump era, but uh, yet that was a little bit unsettled business. And in a in a place like Philadelphia, where everything is at the surface, that unsettled business was still visceral in the 1970s. So that you could you could see the ways in which, um, and because um, Charlene and Paul met in the in the middle of the 60s. Uh, actually, they met at a Martin Luther King uh, speech and talking the 60s. You're talking a time in which uh, most Jews in America still live in inner cities, 
inner city neighborhoods, and uh, they're still part and parcel of a world that is filled with outsiders who are themselves complain, uh, sort of claiming an American identity. And at the same time, the year before that that rally that they meet at, um, there was a you know a, a riot in North Philadelphia, one of the first American race race riots in which black people ransacked mostly Jewish stores. And out of, you know, authentic uh, desire to get revenge for being treated badly for so long. Uh, So it's a fraught thing, but there's no question in my mind that uh, the Jewish experience in America has not always been the white experience in America. And cities... Cities, the frisian of cities is this, American cities particularly, is the life of the outsider. The outsider pushing at the door, the outsider claiming the space, the outsider claiming power, being pushed away by someone else, pushing away the next guy who comes in. This constant frisian is what makes city life in America. And I think of the religious traditions of both communities where you have in in the civil rights movement, the the Exodus story, right, is so significant. The liberative power, the story of Moses emancipating, you know, being God's instrument of emancipating the people. And then you have have the story, the other dominant storyline in the Hebrew Bible, the exile. Right and the diaspora and, and and having to be the chosen people without uh, land and with and without self determination and, and and that's interesting these twin motifs that make up these two group stories in America. It's so right and and what you have here in this in this book is that a couple, a black woman and a Jewish man, go into self exile. Yeah, they have to go to Denver. They go. They have to go to Denver because Charlene makes it up in her mind. Uh, that it's a clean slate place. They don't have uh, a racial history, which is probably not true. Uh, it's certainly an overwhelmingly white place, particularly in 1969 when they decide to move there. Um, but uh, it, they they go into self-exile because she is sure they cannot live as a mixed-race couple in, in the Philadelphia of, of 1969, and, and, and probably with reason. So they go into... S- self-exile and then when Charlene dies it takes Paul about a year to get his self get himself together and and he makes a kind of apocryphal return uh to the homeland i note also that in the past couple of days um the uh black congressional caucus has sponsored this uh travel to to Ghana in Africa uh, involving a lot of legisl- American Congress people going back to Africa, and and they're calling it the year of the return. Uh, uh, so there is this that story among both groups is the prevalent story. And where is home for Paul? He never thought that he would live anywhere else, and he comes home. But when he comes home, he he's totally off kilter, and he ends up living at his parents' house, and they now live in the suburbs. So he's even he's even more off kilter, and he has to for, sort of figure out what it means to be in this homeland. Yeah, again. and that suburb. I mean, it's interesting because if you know Philadelphia as as a reader, it, it, you're not talking that far, right? West Philly to to Ballackinwood. I mean, this is you could walk it on a nice day. It'd be you know, it, and he does. Yeah, he, he, Paul does. Yeah, and, but and yet it's. It's one of those things where Philadelphia is so unlike Pittsburgh, where the natural neighborhood divisions with rivers and, and 
and topography, you know, mountains and hills. It's just clear why we're sometimes there are these transitions between the main line, uh, Overbrook, right? This nice section of Overbrook bleeding into the main line and, and the part of West Philly that's, that's more distressed socioeconomically. And it's like, wait, why is this stoplight the light? <laughs> I mean, it's, if you're, if you're not from Philadelphia, it's arresting. You're like, why, why, why how did this change so fast? What just but, happened? Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. It's funny. I, I, there's the part you in the book is you're talking about Paul and, and where is home and, He's reminiscing about an early romantic moment with he and Charlene, and they're uh, near the Trocadero, and he says, a breeze blew the stench from a fish market on the corner. We had stopped there on the way to Old City, and we ate one of Granny's sandwiches. I had a vague idea. What if we lived in a place like this, someone else's place, neither white nor black? Then it wouldn't matter. But how could we? The stench alone. You like it half dead, half alive, you you said. That's what appeals to you. That isn't what appeals to me. It's interesting that that desire for a place. He, he wants a place that's not that's neither belongs. It belongs to neither of our stories. And, and then eventually, Denver, I guess, becomes this place where they try to recreate things. Exactly. So they, they've they lived in. And when Paul is speaking about three quarters uh, of the book, he's speaking to Charlene, his his deceased wife. She's died of pancreatic cancer. And uh, so his sections of the book, he's he's always speaking to her. And but what what he's what what's happening here is that um, in that scene, which he's relating from the past, from many years before, probably ten years or more before that, uh, or about ten years before, uh, they're remembering this this long day where, or he's remembering this long day where they went through the city looking for a place where they might live if they were to stay and not move away, and. What's appealing to him are these neutral places, but they aren't good enough for her. And the one reason they're not good enough for her is her standards are so high. She wants to live in a nice place. She wants to have some perfection in her life. She's sick of of a place that is half falling apart. And when Paul returns to the city, it's that half falling apart city that reaches his heart and which he sees is a place that is sort of rebuilding itself from its own ashes and that he can attach to. And and the, the book, The Year of the Return, is really, in some sense, about him finally letting go of Charlene and finding for himself a reason to live in this homeland and to return to it and make a life there uh, and to move on from her and to ask her, her permission finally, which is given through Jeanette, basically, the sister, to move on. The first time we talked a couple of years ago, we were talking about the Hidden City book and, and the Hidden City of Philadelphia movement. And, and reading that book, you taught me a word, uh, accretive. And I remember ta- us talking and you saying Philadelphia is an accretive city. It's not one of these cities that I think you said like maybe Charleston or, or parts of Boston where you try to keep pristine all all the history, right? We're, you know, we're trying to preserve everything. Nor is it a place like say LA or Detroit or something where some new movement comes in and remakes the whole city. It gen- it slowly goes layer upon layer. Right. And, and then your last novel, everything is borrowed. You have this uh, architect planner, sort of urban planner who's, who's Jewish and connects to a Jew of the previous century story as he's killing time in the library, you know, trying to get inspiration to work. And it's through this sort of going through the accretive layers that, that he understands the city, his story, this connection to this story of the past. And, and here it seems this is another accretive book that, that you're, that 
they, the folks can't, you know, it's funny because I don't know if these are like uh, your subconscious sort of urban planning biases, but yeah, but, but Paul and Charlie can't go reinvent themselves, can't wipe the slate clean. Like they can't escape the layers. They'll take them with them. And so it's only when Paul returns and sees the layer upon layer uh, that around him that he can see the layers in him. I mean, is that, is that sort of the, is the accretive thing, like not only your sort of perception of Philadelphia, but, but sort of your anthropology. (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, um, he's sort of, I mean, what he's doing when he returns, trying to figure out whether he wants to continue to work as a journalist or not, or even when he is, and he's been given an assignment is to explore the layers of his own heart as they relate to the layers of the city itself and to see himself and his father and his family and Charlene's family, uh, Charlene's grandmother, Elsa, and, and, and see how they all see where they are all in this place of layers and try to accept those layers and try to, um, take them and move on from them, but not to eliminate them. Uh, what the place that he comes back to is exceptionally damaged. It's damaged to its core. It doesn't know what it's going to be in the future, or even if it's going to have a future. And his family, his father particularly, Sam, is damaged by this failure. Um, He's lost Charlene. Charlene's brother, Monty, uh, is damaged by the place and also by his experience in Vietnam. And so all of these things are there. And yet on top of it is this thing that comes sort of from the outside, which is the celebration of the 200th anniversary of the United States, of the Declaration of Independence from England. And it's supposed to be a celebratory moment. And so you take this kind of bright, happy, exciting idea to celebrate this thing that happened in this place and was a world historical event that happened there. And you match it up against a place which is damaged, is scarred, is bleeding. And, and, and you have to sort of find your way through that. And it, and it, almost in a blind way, there's this, this, this clash of emotional forces between the kind of the, the accretive and the whole, the whole celebration. Everything's great. This is the moment for America to take into consideration its greatness. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month? Or more, it's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ken Skillman, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Jennifer Spate, Ben DeHart, Joel Wentz, Jordan DeMice, Samantha Conower, 
Simone Garabedian, David Norlink, Charlotte Donlin, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Kress, Stephen Rowe, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jody Stevenson, Andrew Stravitz, Glenn Stalker, Greg Johnson, and Kai Wintenig. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. This line in chapter 13, this is Paul is narrating this, and so he says, he's he's speaking, I guess, in his mind to Charlene. He says, you would say to me, you love the city because it's a little sick and because you know it's imperfect. The less perfect it is to you, the more real. And what isn't perfect can be loved even more intensely. It can be it can be stroked, smoothed, fixed. Charlene, you, on the other hand, wanted things perfect. A word, a sentence, a paragraph, a story, a city. Ours was so imperfect, we had to leave. Your mind was too sharp. It couldn't smooth things over. And so every imperfection was like a tripwire, and each one stung. And I just wrote in a post on the side, is this Popkin? I, 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 mean, I mean, I know you a little bit, because we've talked a few times and i've seen you sometimes in between then i, I thought is this how you see the city i, I, I thought nietzsche says you know every philosophy every philosophy is the philosopher's personal confession and i wondered is this kind of like your confession it is and it isn't i mean absolutely what what is to what is to love what is to feel in one's heart uh what is to immerse oneself in oneself in 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 their life is this imperfect place is the is the scarred place is the place that also has cracks in it and those cracks are opportunities at the same time despair is a lot to take and it's possible that i have less tolerance for it than paul so i'll i, I mean i think you're right uh, on the on the main of course you've got it completely right this is my philosophy um and it makes actually the reason why this is a great city to be a writer in because there's so much conflict and there's quite a lot of despair and there's also an enormous amount of love and hope and um vision and sunlight where you don't imagine it's going to be an extraordinary sense of survival um and intelligence that comes from living in a place that hasn't hasn't been made perfect already and the project of making it better is a never-ending one you could it could occupy many lifetimes of many people and it does so it's great fruit uh to take pleasure in uh but also it's hard it's hard to take and maybe in that conversation between Charlene and Paul which Paul is remembering from the past is my own is my own conflict there's a quotation i think of every week sometimes some weeks daily but but at least weekly by a psychiatrist frankly he was an anglican and wrote this big tome of 1100 pages where he's trying to teach pastoral thinkers and and psychiatrists how to understand each other's discipline in the introduction of the book, he says, you know, when we look in at ourselves uh, and our humanity, we look in the mirror and we think this should be, our humanity should be a container, which has something good in it, right? And then we look and say, you know, on many of our ambiguous days, which they are, the cupboard is bare, right? He says, you know, we despair, but he says, you know, we're not meant to be cont- containers, but channels of real divine spiritual energy. And so from that perspective, when you get the bottom knocked out of your humanity, it ruins it as a container, but makes it a really fitting vessel or channel. And and that, I mean, I think that is so true about the human condition. And, and when you're on the other side of the bottom getting knocked out, 
if you're a little lucky and get a little grace, you see that. But even the next bottoming out, you'll fight it every step of the way, right? And it's so interesting to watch your the characters in this book struggle with with the bottom getting knocked out in different ways. And yet, as they can come to accept it, they, they become those channels, those vessels. Their, their pain becomes uh, something that, that can be integrated, you know, in this, this layer upon layer. But, but it's hard, right? I mean, because, because we do want to contain. <laughs> every, every one of them is, um, is transforming their despair into a heartbeat. And the heartbeat is their life going on. For Monty... He has this, uh, who's had the bottom knocked out of him over and over again. First, by growing up as a black kid in Philadelphia in the, in the late 60s and uh, realizing there's something different about him. He's super smart, but um, you know, he, he's trying to figure out who he is. And his one touchstone in life is his sister. And that moment when he needs his sister, Charlene, she's not there because she is envisioning this move to Denver and that's all she's focused on. And she can't, she can't see what he needs. She's not. And so he's, she's not there for him. That knocks the, the bottom out of him. Then he gets literally whatever knocked out of him by Rizzo, by Frank Rizzo, his police commissioner and by his police forces. Uh, you know, the police brutality was uh, manifest in this city uh, as it was in a lot of cities, but it was particularly striking here and particularly harsh and Rousseau, and part of the city, I mean, I was a little, I was a toddler. I was born in the early seventies, but my family, I just, we, they talked about Rousseau. You know, we grew up in the metro area in New Jersey and, and there were people in this area that revered Rousseau. I mean, that, that was the great white hope kind of figure. I mean, I mean, it was a, he was a really complex figure because, well, I mean, he was, because people loved this sort of law and order harshness, which, which was on the backs of a lot of people, right? It, it was there. Of course, there was a segment of folks that loved him and there's an analog to the segment of folks who love Trump for similar reasons. And their political strategies are very similar. The way they handle things like the <laughs> you even have a scene where Paul's trying to get his job with the Inquirer, and he, and he, and he, he can't get in. And, and the union guys say, no, like the paper shut down. No one's getting in there. He's like, there's not a fire. He's like, Rizzo told us, the union guys, the press, the enemy of the people. <laughs> and, and he called them that, he called the press that. Um, their tactics are very similar. And so you have, and, and, so Rizzo looms over this book, and it, this book was written in 2017 in the Trump era, and that's not accidental, of course. They're not the same. There's many ways in which Frank Rizzo was a human being, and he was revered by... He was not the child of privilege, Trump was. He, I mean, he, Not he, the child yeah. of privilege, although, you know, as soon as he could, he left his neighborhood, and, you know, he he built himself a nice house in, in a fancy neighborhood, ultimately, and... Uh, not the same, very much more of a human being and a person who really actually liked other people, but he had to control them. And if they were a threat to him, he was going to take them out and, and he would, you know, sort of read a room and identify who was going to be a threat to him and, and act accordingly. And he certainly let, he unleashed the latent racism and hatred and violence that was existing in the name of law and order. And it falls onto the back of uh, a kid like Monty. And so Monty has his bottom cut out then. And Monty goes to Vietnam and has his bottom cut out in very specific ways as a soldier in Vietnam. And he comes home thusly damaged. And, uh, and for him, though, 
he has to sort of erect a new moral code, a new way of living, if it's going to be on the streets or, or whatever. And, and that provisional morality is him trying to adapt to the layers of the place and to the place itself and what he wants that place to be. And ultimately, is he, is he a villain or a hero? It depends maybe on the moment. Yeah, and there's this, early in the book, there's this scene where Paul seeks out Monty because they were close and it was close to Charlene. And, and upon seeing him the first time, Monty spits in his face. And, and it's this painful scene. And later, uh, the Silk family, you know, Sam is, is, is going to try to give Monty a job in the, in, in the family business. And there's this touching, awkward moment with, with, with the two, you know, patrician figures in the fact, the two heads of the paternal heads of the family. And, and, and just, it's the, the complexity of these dynamics is, is palpable. And, 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 and you do a great job of bringing that to the page. I mean, you, you, is your, you feel the complexity as a reader. Yeah. I mean, ultimately you have some empathetic people here. So Sam, who's blind to what's happening and is solely focused on not letting Silk Industries die on his watch and is allowing himself to be extorted by African-American employees of his, almost as if he's asking for it, is also empathetic. And, and Monty is a legendary figure in both of these families. Monty is almost godlike. And he was a student of P Paul's mother, Harriet, and Sam's wife, is an English teacher. And she remarks in the, in the book, she's reminiscing what a brilliant student he was and how he could, he would see, well, she has this great line in the book. She says, he would see double and triple entendres before any of the other students knew the meaning of a sentence. Yeah. And, and so that's Monty. He was this utterly bright kid. And, um, and everyone therefore can see how, how that's been damaged by the forces of the world. And they want to find a way. And so Sam is a kind of man of action. And he says, let's see what we can do. And But but how does Charles, Monty's father, take that? Hasn't he been, all along been trying to save Monty as well? And so there's this like complex um, uh, sort of sense of distance when, when the white man says he's going to save your black son. You don't know how to handle it. And you want to reject it, yeah, but you also want to Sam take says, the opportunity. Sam says, great. You say these people are family, and it's the these people, the, the, and it's said in genuine affection, and yet they're still the, these people. You know, <laughs> it's such a great sentence. Yeah, well, I mean, the racial politics of life uh, in the United States is it, it's embedded into our linguistics, right, in the way we talk and the way we use language, and growing up. I took notice of that uh, growing up in the 70s in this moment in which everything was changing and boundaries were changing and expectations were changing. And of course, reactionary forces were there and old prejudices were still on the surface. And um, I just tried to recall all of that in this novel. Yeah. And it's interesting because it's a, it seems like a raw and yeah, more on the surface dynamics, dynamic around race, where I think that there's something that in the subsequent period felt like uh, it, it was a lot more awkward. You know, it, 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 talking about race, became, it, it's interesting because you think that we've made progress and yet, you know, there's, there's this, the way we talk about it seems awkward. Uh, or it's laced with like virtue signaling kind of stuff. Like, look at like, there, there's not the kind of uh, rawness that you capture here in this era. 
but but the rawness was was in entirely was really entirely unidirectional you know it was the the linguistics came out of the mouths of of white people racism is about white people they invented the language of it they invented the actions of it they're the aggressors and the predators here and the ways in which jews adapted that maybe to prove their whiteness going in you know because all throughout the United States, Jews and blacks grew up together on the streets of cities, yet Jews could, ha- could have an advantage and by ultimately claiming whiteness. And so they adapted that language and they used it. I heard it. I heard it all the time. And so when there's a corrective, which the right wing calls uh, political correctness, this is really a chance to say, well, there are kinds of words that are dangerous and there are kinds of words that are associated with violence and there are kinds of words that that signal that we're we don't believe actually that we're all equal human beings on the planet earth that signal something very different and so the corrective of of uh of saying well you can't talk that way anymore of course it made a lot of people uncomfortable and it made a weirdness and it made it harder to be honest like and direct in the ways that maybe people were used to being. And apparently we're still going through that corrective. You said that really well, that this, this awareness of the way language can really be painful uh, and, and, and objectifying. And, and, yet, and there's something, you know, we're trying to sort of find ways to speak in ways that, are, that bring, reflect dignity and, 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 and don't dehumanize. And yet also doing that without the feeling of censoriousness, right? Because this is just human nature. If if you see a sign, don't walk on the grass. What is the first thing you want to do is walk on the grass. And it's it's hard right, to figure out how do you how do you get at this without creating that backlash? Because I, I I do think some of that is what gave us the age of Trump, right? This guy will this guy will say when people say he's authentic. Well, I mean, I don't know, he's he seems like he kind of is is a sort of a con guy, a front man at times, but. He'll say whatever, you know, and won't care. And, and, and that, and there's something about like that backlash to the censoriousness. And it seems like we flip between extremes, right? Like we're, we're and some, some, finding some sort of, uh, other place where, where people can understand the complexity of language without feeling that censoriousness is just really hard. Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, it's what's happening now is that racist white people or, or white people who uh, felt that th- that during the Obama administration they couldn't use this easy short-circuiting language about other people and otherness that came out of their own fears and their own worst nightmares, but not out of reality or the truth or dignity. Fear. It came out of fear. They had to tamp that down because Obama was the president. And and Trump is telling people, well, that doesn't matter anymore. And you can you can go back to your lazy, lying, dishonest, undignified way of talking about other people now. It's okay. Even if even as you might call yourself a Christian, it's okay. And and I think that signal has been heard loud and clear. Uh and so I think we are struggling with this issue, but I'm not sure we're naming the struggle exactly right. If I was to try to figure it out and to try to understand the struggle for what it really is, I'd ask all 350 million of us to read James Baldwin because he names it correctly as about the fears of white people. It's not about the other people or what they're doing. With the black people that came 
during the Great Migration, as Isabel Wilkerson says in her book uh, on the subject, um, were better educated than the white people in the cities that they were coming to. And, and that there tells you an awful lot. There's a, somebody I had on the podcast a couple of times, Todd McGowan, who teaches at the University of Vermont and is a critical theorist and teaches film and has a philosophy background and knows people like Zizek. He's a really interesting guy, but he did this podcast with one of his former students uh, on the politics of desire. And they were talking about this whole sort of, in the psychoanalytic sense, desire, the guilty pleasure, the thing you do because it gets close to the death drive. And it's only, you know, these guilty pleasures are only good because you know they're deleterious. And he talks about that as Trump's appeal. Like these people, Trump says the wall's almost built. Everybody goes, they know that these people aren't dumb. They know the wall's not, but it's, it's, it's enjoying the lie, right? It's enjoying that it's, it's politics of design enjoyment, like in that psychological sense of you're enjoying the guilty pleasure and Trump becomes the guilty pleasure where, where you're, where, where the, the more falsehood there is, the more enjoyment there is, right? Cause it's this sort of, uh, strange psychoanalytic thing. Well, and, 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 and people who aren't supporters of his take guilty pleasure at, at watching the news and, and all of this stuff too. I would say, I mean, there's great pleasure in shouting, you know, send her back, right? It feels good. And, and, and there's and, a pleasure in, 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 in thinking I'm better than the people shouting. There's this, you know, when you, when you sit at cable news, I mean, the, this, uh, the politics of resentment, right? I mean, people make big money off this, right? <laughs> I, I, Yes, yes. And so but at the same at the same time, it's a pleasure that comes out of insecurity. So we could, you know, apply a Marxist lens to this too and say people are only, you know, shouting at um a representative Omar because um because their own lives are so insecure and they've been made insecure by the this fundamentally flawed capitalist system in America which has, you know, so little safety net for for people in their lives who go into bankruptcy over healthcare and things like that. So so people need something. Uh, at the same time, this these this language of hate that has been unleashed and that is present in the seventies is present in the mouth mouths of uh, mouth of Frank Rizzo in this book and in that time period, and it comes out in the mouths of folks today. It it's a it's a language that. It is violent. When when I hear send her back or if you don't like it here, just leave, I physically get ill because yeah, it, I love this country, right? And so if someone, and I want to make it better, and if someone were to tell me, you know, you, this, you've always been, I've always been a, you know, politically active and uh, protesting and, and saying and speaking my mind about these things. And I've been told, if you don't like it here, go back. That is the... That is the harshest thing you can say to someone. Yeah, at one, at one point, it's just at the it's antithetical to the spirit of the country, right? Where you don't like it, it's a it's it's meant to be perpetually changing, a, a more perfect junior. And the second thing, it is isn't there something like there's something behind it saying, well, if you're brown, you're a citizen, but sort of perfect, you'd be grateful you're here, and you kind of you know you're, you're on thin ice. And, Probation. and if you say certain things, then you could, you know, it, it is, it's sort of saying who is most American, right? I mean, there's something behind it like that. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it for years, um, black families tried to prove their, uh, their value and, um, their worth by being very strict, way stricter than white families, dressing really well and, um, speaking and acting really um, with, with a great deal of dignity publicly. And that was meant to 
communicate something about themselves and to gain acceptance. But every time they did that, the bar was raised a little higher by by tor- by by really sadists, right? That's who they were. And and then at some point in the 60s that snapped. It really snapped here in Philadelphia with someone like Cecil B. Moore, who was the really strong, he wasn't a black power figure. The first black power conferences took place in this city. Uh, he wasn't, but he, but he wasn't, he wasn't ready to, 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 to go about seeking political and, and legal and social acceptance through peace. He was going to claim it. He was going to claim it because it already existed and, uh, and and not apologize and not try to act a certain way in order to claim it because they already had it legally. And, and that I think is a really interesting thing. You know, it's about who owns, who owns the language, who owns, who owns the ability to dictate the terms. And for eight years we had a black president and that was a signal to certain people that they were no longer the ones able to dictate the terms. And I think it really was, it was a kind of earthquake under their feet. It's interesting you said earlier that this, this kind of reaction comes out of insecurity. It comes out, you know, you're, you, you're obviously a person that's politically active and you write fiction and nonfiction and, and you're, you know, at, at times you're an activist. And one of the things that's, I find so incredible about this book is that that's, is your ability to let the story, I, I always think like when, when stories become moralisms where it's just, you're just shouting moral messages or political messages. It, I mean, the politics of this book are, are so, uh, are part of the story. They don't eat the story up. Right. I mean, this, this, and I, I think that that's, I mean, it, I, I think of the kind of work the characters are doing, right. This accretive, this sort of, they're excavating, right. You can't cultivate yourself with an excavation, right. There's no cultivation with excavation and that deep excavation, but that's helping to make a better politics, right. It's in that kind of excavation when they're coming to grips with who they are in these messy contexts that, that, that there is a social kind of, uh, good that comes from that. And they're, and they're recognizing, you know, where they are in society and the politics through dealing with their own interpersonal stories. I mean, that, that I, I it strikes me that if we had more people doing that kind of work in their own lives, right, we're paying attention to the messy, accretive layers uh, in their own stories and how the and, and how their stories relate to the place we live, then our politics might not be as toxic as they are. Yeah, it's a really good point. I mean, it's sort of about being honest and being human, and of course, recognizing in one's life that we're all conflicted, we're all hypocrites. We're all, we all do contradictory things. We're all capable of doing the worst thing at any time. We're all capable of being murderers, right? And we're all capable of being loving and giving dignity to each other and respect and acceptance. So, and, and all of these characters are, are struggling with their own capacities in their own ways. They're not doing it at the same level or in the same ways because they're, they're each individuals. Um, and they they go, they face the world in their own special way, particular way. Uh, but you're right. I mean, you can't write a novel in which you're, that's strident. No one would read that. Um, and to go back to your very first question, these characters somehow were living inside of me for a long time and they came out as, as human beings that in a way that was very satisfying to me as the writer. And I, I loved 
just giving them, you know, things to do because they were there uh, and they were each of them struggling. The struggle in this book is of course a good bit about race, but it's also about, it's about love. It's about, um, finding one's way. It's about, uh, morality and, and ethics and, and, you know, doing the right thing or not, uh, in, in a, in a shattered world. Yeah, it's interesting. Todd McGowan, the guy referenced, uh, who's been on the podcast before, he's a, he's a Hegel scholar and a big fan of Hegel. He was talking about, uh, in a pot, in, in another episode of his podcast once where he, they were talking about how Kant versus Hegel would, would address the, the, uh, sort of immigration tropes that go on our politics, you know, because they said, well, you have these stereotypes that are, that seem to be conflicting. Well, the Mexican immigrant, the undocumented, he's the speed of Gonzalez trip. He's going to, he's super f- efficient, industrious. He's going to take away your jobs, right? The jobs. Then they're also lazy, shiftless. And they're, and he said, the Kantian would say, well, well, no, that's, he's can't both. So the Hegelian would say, no, it's yes. That Mexican is both industrious and shiftless, just like white people are industrious and shiftless, just like we're all of us. Every individual has industrious. And, sh- and he, he's saying the moment somebody can't have contradictions, that's when the moment we dehumanize them. And, and feminists have taught us this around the Madonna whore complex. You, you know, kind of, I, I can be maternal and sexual. I can be, but isn't that something about the, the moment we have people that can't have, be contradictions and, and complex and, and have dilemmas, like you're saying, and, and these characters reflect that. So the moment we, you can have, they're not humans in our, in our story, in our politics, in our country, right? Yeah, it's, it's really, it's, and you go back to your point about maybe the possibility for breaking through to a less toxic politics would be to accept that. But our, our politicians speak into this void where they're expected to, that you're either bad or good. And, and none of them speak to complexity at a, at a, at a personal level, at a human level. The, the, that's one of the things about rhetoric, political rhetoric in the U.S. It's so interesting that you say that. So if, you, if you listen to political rhetoric in, in other countries, it accepts the fact that at an individual level, we might make error. It, it, it's one of the reasons, for example, why we can't do something about guns in this country, right? The fact is, you know, it's, it's, is it guns or is it people? Well, the fact is that people have arguments. People get angry. People do stupid things. And the reason why guns are a problem is because they're so readily available. Because people do stupid things. But first, you have to accept that people do stupid things. And that's, that's what people do. And not imagine that everyone could be you know, always acting in a perfectly legal and ethical way all the time, which is some imaginary world. And, and so, so you have to, so then you create public policy around complex people, you get much better public policy. If you get, if you make public policy around some kind of idealized notion of, about the way human beings act or, or about what the country is supposed to be like, then you get very poor policy. David Brooks said this somewhere. I think it was maybe in his book, The Social Animal. He said, most politicians of either party I've ever met are incredibly good at understanding human complexity. You can see it in them campaigning, the ones that win a lot. And they so then when they become policymakers, all of that emotional intelligence and ability to go, it goes out the window. <laughs> in the po- so it's like in the campaigning process, they get, co- you know, like they understand human relationships and dynamics. And, and then when they govern it, that, that somehow that, that, that just atrophies instantly. It's, it's remarkable. And, the, and that complexity, you know, goes into the national character. The national character of the U.S. is conflicted. Are we a free market country? Well, we are to a certain degree, but we also love community. And these are the, interestingly, these are the ways in which 
President Obama could identify these complexities in the American national character. And he tried to do it all the time, pretty much every time he spoke, which was to give dignity to both of those ways of thinking about the country that I think we each of us believes in. We are a country of individuals, where individualism is a kind of important thing, and we take our individual freedoms to be quite, take them very seriously. We don't like people to infringe upon our individual freedoms. But at the same time, we know that that things happen in communities and that not and not everything is done for say the profit motive so that complexity if it, you know it can be understood it can be identified it can be talked about but we tend not to do it uh, and that's to our detriment you know it, as i read this book it it aroused a kind of patriotism in me like i thought this is <clears throat> the story of these families blended together and and dealing with their pain and and trying to figure out what home is together. I thought, I thought wow, what a great national story that, that, that through, you know, that, that again, we're, we're, like you said, perfecting a city over, you know, it's, it's, it's not just a lifetime, it's generations, you know, working on these projects. And it's, 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 it's a, I mean, you, you, you paint a picture of the American experience that, you know, Barack Obama, remember, he said, no, no other country could have a story like mine, you know, with all this complexity in this. And, and yeah, I, I mean, I, it, was there that beneath this a kind of celebration of Americana for you? Well, in a certain way, yes. The the book takes place from February to July in 1976, and uh, you know I had American flags on my bicycle in 1976, and um, probably felt pretty patriotic in some kind of like young boy way. Uh, it's the celebration of the birth of the nation in the place where it happened. And the underlying story here is that what's happening in the life of Philadelphia in 1976 is that people are coming together to kind of, in their actions, by and those that are coming together to actually create a recall petition to, uh, to recall Frank Rizzo as mayor, are building a kind of on-the-streets democratic life of the city, which is what comes to be the force that changes the city into the next decades and beyond. And that demic, that, 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 that grassroots activism, beating the streets, talking to people, convincing them. Frank Rizzo had won with 58% of the vote only months before. And yet this movement was coming together that was very successful and ended up, except for some trickery, would have recalled him as mayor. And, um, it was very forceful and very powerful. It was in, it was literally the reenacting of American democracy in that year of 1976. And to me, that's the exciting thing. That's the thing that I feel, you know, is resonant with the sort of resistance movements of today in the Trump era, the same kind of thing where when you have a man who says, I alone will fix it, what he's doing is shutting down what is true and real about the United States, which is that it's up to us as the people to do that. The other thing I want to say to your point about the patriotism is that, uh, is Michael Boatman read the book. He's an actor and um, he grew up on the South side of Chicago in a, in a, in a, in, in a all black neighborhood, but a military family. And when he read this book, of course, the, the, there's a kind of funny scene toward the end, which involves the American flag. Uh, it's on July 3rd. And um, and it involves Monty, who is a Vietnam War veteran. And and he he just, 
Michael, he told me, he called me, and he just sort of welled up in, in reading this scene because it was about patriotism. It was about respecting the flag. It was about being an American and respecting what this country means. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think you're onto something when you say that. You know, I, when I read your stuff, I, I sometimes think I had this experience this time too. I, I thought, because I live for our listeners that wouldn't know, but I live in Greater Philadelphia area and I'm downtown a lot. I always think, I, I wonder what it would be like to walk around and see the city through Popkin's eyes. Like I, I'm imagining you walking around, what you see and stories that are coming to light in your mind as, you, as you're walking around. And I'm thinking, do I see the city he's seeing? But, you know, it's just such a great book, all of your work, but The Year of Return, like, it, it is an opportunity in some level, on some level, to see uh, the city through your eyes and, and see the stories you see. And it's great. I, I can't thank you enough for writing it and for spending some time talking with me about it. Great conversation, Scott. It was a really great pleasure. Oh, pleasure is all mine. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks again to Nathaniel for coming on the podcast. Do check out his book, The Year of Return. You won't regret it, I promise you. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.